Hi, I'm Carmen LeBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles, arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's time to rise and shine. It is the. 8th of September. This is the second hour of Mornings with Carmen. If you missed the first hour, you can go grab it as a podcast. Also, for those of you looking for the links to articles or books that we discussed in the first hour, you can find those in the show notes. Those are posted every single day at MyFaithRadio.com when the podcast goes up after the program. And if you subscribe to the podcast, um, then you can get the show notes um you know, it's right there in the description. Like, so you can click on them. They're all there. Um, so what are the odds? What are the odds? You could play the odds. Um, in, in this case, we're going to talk about something that happened on a golf course in Connecticut that defies all odds. This defies all odds. Now, if you've ever played golf, then um, you know that there's something called par, and that's the number of strokes that it's supposed to take to get to the hole, right? So in this case, we're going to talk about a par five. That means it should take you five strokes. You're going to, um, you know, you're going to hit your tee shot, and then you're probably going to hit two shots to get to the fairway or to the uh, mm-hmm, to the green. So you're on the putting service in three, and then you still have two strokes to get it in, like you know, a two putt. So that's that's a par five. That's ordinarily how a par five is played. Now, if you were going to make a birdie on a par five. You, it would take you four shots. If you were going to make an eagle on a par five, it would take you three shots. What's it called if you make that par five in two shots, which means your tee shot and then one more shot from the fairway that actually goes in the hole? Well, that's called an albatross. It's an extremely unusual uh, score to get. It's almost impossible to imagine that two people would get an albatross on the same hole. And it's even more impossible to imagine that they would get an albatross on the same hole on the same day, playing in the same group at the same time. Back to back albatross on a par five at the Blackstone National Golf Club in Sutton, Massachusetts um, over the weekend. Who were the two men who got back-to-back albatross, Christian Emmerich and Owen Egan? And you say to yourself, I don't, those don't sound like professional golfers. I don't know those names. Yeah, that's because they're college students. One is a senior and one is a sophomore, and they play on the men's golf team for Holy Cross. They were in a qualifying round on Sunday uh, ahead of the team's season-opening event, um, which I think is going to take place this week, probably starting today. So here's how it happened. Um, Christian Emmerich, who is a senior, um, teed off and took a what would be considered a very aggressive line, which means he he was going to cut the corner off of this par five. And so he his tee shot goes up over the trees. 
on this huge dogleg uh, right hole, um, and he clears those trees, and so he is only 160 yards from the hole. Uh, Egan comes up to the tee next and says, yeah, I'll follow the line of my friend, um, and I will, you know, I'll take that same aggressive line. He is successful. His tee shot clears the corner and lands a mere 125 yards from, um, from the hole. And that means that Emmerich takes the next shot because he's out at 160 yards. Um, and he, uh, he hits, um, as I think, a seven, an eight iron. I'm reading here. He hits his approach shot or what he anticipates is going to be his approach shot. And it's an eight iron and it goes in the hole. And they go berserk. They go bananas. They're playing with a third guy and he's the witness to all of this. And it's incredible. Um, Egan says, my heart was still pounding. I was still shaking from seeing his shot go in when I took my approach shot. So he has his wedge because he's only 125 yards out and he takes this wedge shot and sure enough, it goes into the hole as well. What are the odds? What are the odds? You actually have better odds of being struck by lightning than getting an albatross, than making an albatross in golf. So um, uh, why share this story today? Um, Because things that are completely out of the ordinary and totally extraordinary do happen. They happen. Um, And these young men have put in hard work for sure. But I'm also thinking that had the first one not taken the aggressive line and demonstrated to the younger man that it could be done, maybe Egan would have never tried. So what might you do today that, you know, because you're further along down uh, the discipleship journey than someone else, you know, where you might actually take a shot at something? and demonstrate that extraordinary things really can and do happen. What if we live today expecting the unexpected and anticipating miracles, knowing that with God, all things are possible? And yeah, I think it's kind of cool that they play for Holy Cross. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Thursday morning, on Thursday morning at this time, we have our friend, Dr. Peter Capster with us. Um, He is taking a sabbatical. He's going to take a sabbatical from teaching in the spring, but he has uh, begun taking like a sabbatical from these conversations as of today. And so we look forward to um, him rejoining us in the future as time and, um, and circumstance permit. Let's be praying for him as he is Uh, considering, you know, like the, you know, he focuses on the next generation and he focuses on the conversations that they're having and the challenges that they face. And so um, as he turns his attention more intentionally to all of that, um, let's be praying for him and and be of good encouragement and anticipate his return sometime down the line. But that does mean that right now it's just you and me. So there you go. Um, I know you're disappointed, but bear with me. I, I have some things that I have um, prepared to talk with you about um, that we would have included Peter in the conversation and he would have um, he would have offered a lot of wit and wisdom. But here we go. So do you um, 
Do you have any recollection um, or knowledge of a guy named Pat Croce? So you'd probably have to be an NBA fan. Uh, this seems like I'm talking sports today. I've done golf, and now we're going to do a guy that um, used to own the Philadelphia um, basketball team, which I think is the 76ers. That sounds right. That would be right. Philadelphia, that would be right. They would have a, they would have a team named after a, a significant year in American history. All right. So, um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know this guy. Here's what I do know. He is now um, talking in, in pretty um, high-profile environments on a topic that's so close to the truth that you, like, you, you're just, like, waiting with anticipation that he's going to say the name of Jesus. Now, he doesn't. He doesn't. That's not where this goes. And so I want to say that right out. But he's, like, so close to the truth that I wanted to lift this up in conversation today to say, hey, this conversation is being had in the culture, and it's so close to the truth. It's not the truth, but it's so close to the truth. So Pat Croce is, um, he's talking about mindfulness, and he wrote an article called Die Before You Die. Die Before You Die. And then he talks about, you know, you got to die before you die in order that you can truly live. And I'm saying, (laughs) okay, that sounds very Jesus-y. But for Pat Croce, it comes from this ancient inspiration that's carved over the door um, of a monastery. And yet he never, like, gives, he never nods in the direction of the fact that it's a monastery. Like, this is a Christian declaration. Instead... Um, he gives his nod and then his allegiance to um, the Dalai Lama in particular. So that's, that is where he thinks his inspiration to die before you die comes from. So I want to read the inscription over the door of St. Paul's Monastery that's located um, on a peninsula in, in Macedonia in northern Greece. And it reads this, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. If you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Now, that is the truth, and that is the proclamation of the gospel. But then it gets twisted and blurred by something called mindfulness. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right, so I'm unpacking an article that I have read online, the link to which is in my show notes today if you're interested in reading the whole thing. Um, It's by Pat Croce, and it's entitled Die Before You Die. And um, he's getting a lot of public 
traction on this particular conversation. And so I thought it might be helpful for, you know, us to unpack it. Um, again, it is inspired by uh, a a line, an ancient inscription carved above the door of St. Paul's Monastery in northern Greece. And it reads, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Croce goes on um, in this uh, piece to talk about metaphysics. He talks about mindfulness. Um, and he talks about um, his own um, experience of getting to the place where He describes it this way. When you stand in front of the mirror, you always see yourself, but the the physicality of the person you're looking at changes over time, sometimes in very dramatic ways. But beyond the physical person you're seeing, you see yourself. And he's he talks then about, you know, that being, you know, basically the ego, the person, the essence of the person. And once you get to the place where you recognize that that ego, that person has to die in order that you can really live, um, that, you know, that you're always just going to be um, striving after the things of this world that never satisfy. Okay, that is so Jesus-y, I can hardly say it out loud and, and, and imagine that a person could be so close to the truth and yet so very far away. So um, um, he talks about, anyway, he talks about all kinds of freedom in this piece. And he talks about um, mindfulness in particular as the route or the way to um, getting to this place. He also talks a lot about the statement, I am. Um, And again, for those of us who are Christians, we recognize that God reveals himself as what? Reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush by what name? Yahweh, I am. I am. It's ineffable among among the Jews because it's so sacred. It's so precious to know the name of God. And God, throughout Scripture, I mean, you know, talks about how jealous he is for his name. Um, the name of God matters, and the reality that God is the great I am matters. And Jesus lays claim to being the I am. And then he has these I am statements um, that we, we hear particularly in the Gospel of John. Like, again, this, this conversation um, about really being able to live because you die before you die is so Jesus-y. It's so biblical. It's so, it's so near. Um, and yet this particular individual who is writing this never never says the name of Jesus and never um, claims an understanding um, that this is in any way connected to the reality of the God who is. And so I lift this up because this is the culture that we live in. This is the reality of, of, of how close people are and how open they are to spiritual conversations and how genuinely they're seeking. This is a man who is seeking desperately, energetically, um, and, and he's doing so in a very, very public way. And so um, I want to I encourage us today to read widely, even things that you would say, why do I need to read that? Why do I need to read about, I mean, that guy, that, that guy that owned the 76ers, why do I need to read what he's writing? Well, in part because, you know, he's a precious human being, but also in part because he's a huge 
cultural influencer. And, um, and he's going to be able to speak to people in, in places and environments that you and I are never going to have access to. Um, and so it would be great for one who's just so close um, to the truth to actually know it. I just, you know, and, and I, this is not a, a condemnation or a criticism or a judgment of this individual at all. I'm using what he wrote and is posted in a very public environment um, and that he has given other secular radio interviews about in recent days um, because this is something that the world is talking about. And so we ought to be people who can speak into this conversation. Um, so I want to uh, offer up John chapter 12 into this conversation uh, this conversation about die before you die and die before you die in order that you might really live, which is the point he's ultimately making. And so into that conversation, I encourage you to read all of John chapter 12. Here, I'm just going to read um, verses 20 to 26. Um, Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So this is a feasting season. This is, um, you know, this is the last handful of chapters of the Gospel of John. So, you know, we're in the Passion narrative here. Um, So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, we wish to see Jesus. And so Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip then went and told Jesus. And I just love all the details there. Like, you know, okay, these guys came to Philip. Um, because they thought he would be receptive, and Philip went to Andrew, and then Andrew went to Peter, and then Peter and Andrew went together to Jesus. (laughs) Okay, I love the details. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, can these guys come talk to you? They want to see you. That's the question. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servants also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm also thinking about Jesus's um, words to Mary and Martha. Martha in particular, um, that though they die, yet shall they live. And those who live and believe in me will never truly die, for I am the resurrection and the life. I want you to consider the power today of the knowledge of the great I am. That's the identity conversation that the world is desperately longing to have today. If you know the one who is the great I am, if you know the one who is the way and the truth and the life, I mean, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the living water. I am the bread of heaven. I am the gate of the sheep. Jesus's I am statements are very profound. And, um, and from those I am statements, we come to know who we are. This is not just the philosophical I am that I am. This is the God who is and in and whom we find our being. So, do you know, do you know 
that in order to truly live, you must first die. And you have to die before you die. We have to die to self. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, says the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20. And the life I now live, I don't live unto myself, but I live unto the one who died to save me. I encourage you today to um, consider the one who is the great I am and the invitation to find your being, your life, even your life eternal in him. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. of the United States ratified in 1787 is like 235 years old this year. And Constitution Day is the 16th of September. So how does the Constitution begin? We, the people of the United States, in order to, and then here's a list of six things, form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our, pros- and our posterity, which means generations after us, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. All right, that's a long list, and there are some pretty big words in there and definitely some big ideas. Starting with, okay, in the same way that we would unpack the Lord's Prayer in this way, like the Lord's Prayer starts, Our Father. Well, what does it mean for God to be Father? And what does it mean for God to be our Father? Like when, when the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray, he doesn't give them a prayer that's individualistic. He gives them a prayer that's corporate. So in the same way that the Lord's Prayer starts with the word our, the Constitution starts with the word we. That is curious and interesting to me. Who are we the people? Well, who were the we the people in 1787 who made this declaration? And then who are the we, the people of the United States today? And what does that mean? And what does it mean to form a more perfect union? What does it mean to establish justice? What, what is domestic tranquility and how is it ensured? What is the common defense and how should it be rightly provided for? What is general welfare and how is it promoted? And what are these blessings of liberty? that need to be secured for ourselves and for generations after us? What does it mean for a group of people to ordain or establish a constitution? I mean, what is a constitution anyway? What is a constitutional form of government? These are questions that are interesting and worthy of our consideration. Professor um, Robert, he goes by Tracy McKenzie, who serves at Wheaton College, he's joined us before We have talked with him about his book, We the Fallen People, Um, and I thought it would be good in anticipation of Constitution Day for us to talk with him again about some of these big questions, like what is a Constitution and what made the Constitution that was ratified in 1787 so unique at the time and what makes it unique today? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is a new day. 
Tracy McKenzie is a professor at Wheaton College, but he um, he might prefer that we acknowledge that he's married to his best friend, Robin, um, that he's got three adult children, um, that his favorite movie is Chariots of Fire, followed by Father of the Bride, and he has two favorite books, um, Brothers Karmatsov and Peace Like a River. There you go. Um, so, uh, Tracy is a professor at Wheaton. He has joined us on a prior occasion to talk about his book, We the Fallen People. And he's back today because this is soil we need to continue to till. So, Tracy, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. It's my pleasure, Carmen. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you. So, we're going to, um, we are fast approaching Constitution Day on the 16th. And so, I teed this conversation up um, with, uh, you know, just just asking ourselves, who are the we that are we the people um, and then, you know, what are these, what does it mean to form a more perfect union or establish justice or in, ensure domestic tranquility? I mean, the things that are listed there. Um, and then what does it mean to ordain and establish a constitution? Like, why does a constitution even matter? So you can pick up and pull any of those threads you want. <laughs> That's a great question. Our, a series of questions, actually, all of them huge. Um, maybe we should just start with um, the the question about we the people and who that is. Uh, I just believe that that's one of the most important questions that we wrestle with uh, as a democracy. Before societies become democratic, they take for granted that uh, there will be certain elites who will guide and lead uh, the the nation uh, or the people as a whole. But when we become democratic, uh, at least in principle, we say that everyone is supposed to have a voice, at least everyone who's part of the people. So uh, once a society becomes democratic, the question that really becomes, uh, I think, more important than any other is who are we going to consider part of the people? Uh, Because if they are part of the people, then we concede to them a right to an equal voice. So I think you hear that kind of rhetoric all the time today, where individuals talk about the the real people or the real America. uh, And in essence, what we're struggling over is who has a right to a voice and who doesn't. Uh, there's no more important question uh, that we wrestle with. Um, and in a culture like ours and in a time like this, um, which, you know, it d- does occur to me that the conversations that you have had historically about time and the time in which we live are not disconnected from this contemporary conversation about we the people. And so I, I would tie those two threads together in terms of things I've heard you talk about in the past. Um, we are struggling as you note, to to come to any place of consensus about almost anything. And we seem to be in a time when the loudest voices and the most extreme voices are the ones who get the most play. But that does not necessarily mean that's what we the people really want. Oh, that's absolutely true. There's no question about that. Uh, when you talk about we struggle to agree about anything, I, I am uh, struck, actually. I think there's one thing that we do um, agree about. I was reading a survey uh, that actually came out just in the last uh, two weeks, a uh, major national survey, and the question that it poses is, do you think the nation's democracy is in danger of collapse or don't you? Uh, and uh, the, the response is sobering. Almost 70% of Americans believe that democracy is in danger of collapse. But when you uh, sort of parse the data, what's amazing is that 69% of Republicans and 69% of Democrats uh, agree uh, on that. So it's one sort of area of bipartisan agreement, but I don't think it should give us a great deal of, uh, of hope. 
you're, you're right that the loudest voices get the most attention. And it's at least possible that Americans are not as divided as we're told that we are. Uh, it, I think we have to be aware at the very least that certain of the voices that we listen to uh, are really responding to a kind of market model in which uh, polarization pays. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I think we have to be very careful about that. I've heard this sometimes referred to as an outrage industrial complex, uh, a kind of money-making machine that feeds off uh, fueling our sense of danger and our distrust of one another. Uh, and that's a bad place to be in. Oh, that is so helpful. Um, I would love for you to talk about um, to return to the conversation about who we are as it's not just we the people, it's we the fallen people. There were some things that the framers understood about the nature of people um, that influences then how they structured this particular democracy. Can you talk about their worldview or the worldview that is in evidence in our Constitution? Uh, Absolutely, Carmen. That's so good. I'm so glad that you asked uh, that. Uh, Even though our Constitution does not explicitly um, articulate this in so many words, I would argue that every line of the Constitution reflects a particular understanding uh, of human nature. Uh, The framers of the Constitution believe that men and women are complex beings. We we have capacity for uh, great moral virtue, for courage and compassion and uh, other sorts of uh, virtues. But our default mechanism, our strongest motivation, they believed, was self-interest. And I argue in in my writing that this is a view of human nature that's absolutely consistent with what Christians have traditionally believed for 2,000 years and what the church has has taught, uh, which is that we are fallen people, uh, that the motivations that uh, are most strong in our hearts are the desire to have autonomy, to rule ourselves, uh, and basically to do what we want. And so the framers believed if that is our sort of default uh, motivation, uh, they believe that power is always going to be dangerous to liberty. So if you or I have power over our neighbors, we're probably not going to use that to promote the common good. We're going to use that actually to pursue our own individual self-interest. So the checks and balances in the Constitution, the division of powers, um, the sorts of features that we memorize in junior high and, and don't make a lot of, all those grow out of a sense that um, that power is a threat to liberty and it does not matter who wields it. So you structure a constitution always with that in mind. You hope that people will be virtuous, but you never structure the government assuming that they will be. In fact, you assume that they're probably going to be pretty selfish. Yeah, that gets us to um, James Madison's quote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary, right? I mean, he's the principal author of the Constitution, and he's recognizing um, that human beings are fallen. It occurs to me, even though in his, sta- in his statement, he does miss that angels, angels, or at least some of them, are fallen as well. <laughs> Fair enough. So, yes, Madison <laughs> is really the father of the Constitution, as he's often re- re- referred to. Uh, and that, that I love that quote, uh, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. We've lost that view, but the framers actually would have said that the very existence of government is a reminder that we uh, can't be trusted to treat one another virtuously uh, on our own. Thomas Paine, who wrote the pamphlet Common Sense, that is still really probably the most uh, single most influential piece of political writing in American history, he said that government Uh, is like dress. It's the reminder of our lost innocence. And there, what he was talking about was the story in 
in Genesis of Adam and Eve who are clothed by God after they, they disobey him. Uh, and that clothing was a constant reminder of the rebellion. And Paine said, well, our government is a kind of constant reminder uh, of our sinfulness. Hmm. Um, so Tracy McKenzie um, is a deconstructionist. I know, I know. I'm freaking you out now by saying that. But he's going to um, explain to us here in just a moment the deconstruction that is necessary of some of our maybe most Americana beliefs. We're going to talk about democratic faith and we're going to talk about a democratic gospel. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do every morning on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. I don't want you to miss any of it. So check out the free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. One of the things I would like for you to consider is becoming a Faith Radio ambassador. We talk about walking our faith out into the world that God so loves and doing so in ways that honor Jesus. Well, that's because we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. You can become a Faith Radio ambassador today and help us get the word out to others about this and other programs on the Faith Radio Network. Uh, We will supply everything that you need to share with others, and you can sign up to be a Faith Radio ambassador at MyFaithRadio.com. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. Paul Perot has a song for everything, so thank you, Paul, for teeing up that little constitutional ditty. We're talking with Dr. McKenzie from Wheaton. Um, You can find him as Robert McKenzie, but he goes by Tracy. Um, Let's talk about, you know, the fact that you're a deconstructionist. Uh, Talk with us about these terms, democratic faith, democratic gospel, and this understanding that America is great because America is good. Uh, yes. So first of all, I'm, I'm going to push back against the label. <laughs> I know that you're meaning it partly in jest. Uh, I'm, I'm actually just trying to get us to think Christianly about these terms, in particular about the message, sort of pervasive message that uh, we hear in the public square today, which is essentially that we, whoever we are, uh, are pretty good and the only threat to um, a kind of a just and uh, flourishing society is them, is some other uh, mm. individual. So I argue uh, that if there is a democratic gospel, it is simply this message that we are basically good uh, and that America is great because Americans, because we are good. Uh, And uh, the democratic faith that you alluded to, uh, I suggest, is is sort of the idea that if we are individually good, then our collective decisions are going to be reliably just and wise. So a majority rule always leads to, uh, to good outcomes. Uh, and I think that's only can only be logically true if we think people are basically good, which is another way of saying if we deny what the framers thought, which is another way of saying if we deny what Scripture teaches. Uh, and so I argue that what we need to be cultivating uh, is a hope for democracy, uh, but not a faith in democracy. Faith in democracy, I think, is misplaced and it's actually con- contradicting uh, foundational Christian teachings, hope for democracy, we need to be nur- nurturing. So how do we do that? How, how do we nurture hope for democracy in, um, in a context where p- 
people do imagine that whatever they perceive to be good is therefore good. And those bad ideas have real consequences. Uh, Carmen, that's just a great question. I don't have I don't have a good answer for that. But here's what I I do believe strongly. Uh, I think that um, as Christians, we cannot we are not responsible for the outcome of this cultural uh, moment. But we are accountable to God for the way that we uh, witness to those around us, to the kind of testimony that we present to uh, a fallen world around us. Uh, And I think one of the things as Christians we want to be very careful about is that we are not ourselves fueling or endorsing or reinforcing this narrative which says uh, that we're basically all fine uh, and that the only danger to our society lies outside of our hearts. I emphasize in in my book this famous uh, observation by the Christian Russian Christian thinker Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who uh, in the middle of the 20th century wrote that the the line that separates good and evil doesn't run between political parties or between nation states. It runs right within every human heart. Uh, And I think as Christians, we want to be constantly asking ourselves, what are the kinds of um, messages that we're receiving and recycling and endorsing? What are they saying about that? And I, I fear that more often than not, we are following right in step with the culture and endorsing a we versus them sort of understanding, which says, uh, actually, I'm fine uh, uh, morally. It's that group or that individual that really is the cause of all our problems. Okay, Tracy, that um, that is at the root, I think, of not only our very real problems, but our very real misunderstandings of one another. And we are, um, we seem very quick to be able to um, identify um, what's broken or wrong with the position of another person and completely disabled in seeing how, um, how our view is contributing to the division. And I think part of that is like, we see things that are happening in our culture that are genuinely based on what God has revealed about his, um, you know, his desire, his character, his creation, his, like, we see them and we know they're not good. And so when we see things that are, like, intrinsically not good, how do we, how do we stand as people of faith um, without seeming culturally oppositional, like divisional? Do, do you see what I'm, you see what I'm trying, the root I'm trying to dig up here? Yeah, yeah, I think I do. I mean, I think it's a, it's a difficult um, tightrope that we're, we're called to walk here. I, I think when we acknowledge uh, the fallenness of everyone, when we acknowledge the image of God in everyone, that doesn't mean that that requires us to say that all political positions or all policy views or all moral stands are equal. That's not the point at all. So we need to be able to exercise moral discernment. And yet, uh, we, we have to avoid what Christ warned us against, which is the kind of self-righteous judgment, uh, which says, Father, I thank you that I'm not like that other person. Uh, and so um, when we encounter those who um, we believe have a, a deeply flawed view, uh, we, we don't see them, we ought not to see them as someone fundamentally different from ourselves, uh, uh, you know, there but for God's grace and mercy in our lives, we'd be exactly in the same uh, position. So we don't treat them as enemies. We don't treat them as other. 
uh, we treat them as, um, well, the sort of neighbor that Jesus said we're supposed to love. Uh, the, you know, the, the Samaritan and, and, the, uh, and the Pharisee that dealt to love the unlovely. Yeah, I'm thinking here about C.S. Lewis, um, you know, and his observation about like how we see people and if we could see them um, as as they will be in eternity, um, we would either be like, you know, tempted to worship them because they would be so glorious or absolutely, you know, terrified of the reality um, because of 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 how they are going to be living apart from God. Um yeah. Tracy, this is all this is all so very helpful. Um, what is the democratic gospel? I might have missed that. So it's just that the democratic gospel is basically this message that tell that tells us relentlessly that we're good. Uh, it doesn't mm. say that everyone's good. It means usually what it means is our group, whoever we are, we are good. Uh, our movement is good. Uh, the line between good and evil doesn't run within our individual hearts. It runs between us and some other group. Uh, and so that's what I have in mind with the democratic gospel. And I think if you'll just be alert to that, and you start listening with your antenna up to political messages. It doesn't matter which side of the aisle they come from. It doesn't matter if they're inside the beltway or outside the beltway. They typically deny that the line between good and evil really runs within a single heart. That's so helpful. That is so helpful. Um, I have loved this conversation. I love the book, We the Fallen People. I so appreciate um, not only the content of this conversation, but the tenor um, in which you're having it. Um, and so thank you so very much for being with us today. We we just genuinely appreciate um, this. And, you know, thank you for helping us uh, get prepared for Constitution Day on the 16th. It's my pleasure, Carmen. So good to speak with you. What a delight. That is Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie from Wheaton College. He's the author of We the Fallen People. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. So some people have, um, they get to say grace not only over maybe their own family and the next generation, but they get to say grace over many generations and many families of people. Um, And one of the people who has had the privilege of saying grace now over, um, over more people than I could even imagine is Queen Elizabeth II. Um, And I just would invite you to be, um, praying for her family today and for the people who consider themselves her people. Um, we, um, we are aware that Queen Elizabeth's uh, health is um, fragile. She's 96 years old. Doctors are, quote, concerned for Her Majesty's health, and her family has been called to her side. Um, and so, you know, I think we all anticipate, um, I mean, we all know that death comes for everyone, but she has lived so long and seen so much and reigned um, so well um, that it's hard to imagine the world without her. Um, and yet that moment may be fast approaching. So um, prayers over, over generations have been answered. Um, you know, long live the queen. The queen has lived long. Um, let's be praying for her family as they are by her side now in what may be her waning, um, waning hours. Let's be lifting up that family. She is, you know, a wife and a mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother before she is, in fact, the Queen of England. Let's be praying today um, gently for one another and our families and the generations 
um, that we impact. Thank you so much for this time together. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.